welcome to another edition of the Pre-Raphaelite podcast, brought to you by the Pre-Raphaelite Society. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to invite Dr. Alison Chapman onto the show. Um, Dr. Alison works out of the University of Victoria in Canada. Um, Dr. Alison, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Of course, I'm delighted. And first of all, thank you for inviting me onto the podcast. It's very exciting to be here and to talk to you. Well, I'm a specialist in Victorian poetry in particular, with all of the side interest in the Pre-Raphaelites, especially Christina Rossetti. And I teach and research at the University of Victoria in BC, Canada, as you mentioned. And at the moment, I'm wrapping up a really large digital project uh, called Digital Victorian Periodical Poetry, or DVPP for short. That is a quite a huge collaborative project with a large team of wonderful research assistants and a programmer, and also working in tandem with UVic's special collections as well. Uh, and the project is to uh, index uh, periodical poetry from 21 uh, Victorian periodicals that are actually held in UVic special collections. So we have access to the material copies and we can scan them. And we also encode a representative sample um, so every 10 years from 18, I think it's 1820 to 1900, we encode the um, poetry for things like material features like illustrations and also poetic features like rhyme type and that kind of thing. And currently we have over 15,500 poems, uh, over 4,000 people in our personography. And these people are poets and translators and illustrators and 21 uh, Victorian periodicals too and our project's coming to an end in March when our funding finishes from SHIRC which is the Social Science and Humanities Research Council of Canada who've generously funded the project. Thank you for that. Um, I have to say I've spent many an hour with the digital Victorian periodical poetry DVPP and mm -hmm. it is a mammoth project. Uh, can you Tell us a bit more about how, how long this has actually taken and the sort of processes involved in creating it, because it, it really is quite a special thing. Oh, well, thank you for that. I appreciate the comments. Well, it's taken such a long time, I barely remember when it started. <laughs> um, but in fact, it started around um, over 10 years ago with a graduate course when I was teaching at UVic, a graduate course on popular Victorian poetry. And with the students, we were trying to identify the most read poems of the era. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, we looked at periodical poems, which were so highly circulating. Um, many scholars think of periodicals as the main poetry publishers of the era, such as Andrew Hobbs, a scholar who's done a lot of wonderful work on this. And so uh, with my students, we started to create indexes of poems in periodicals, the first few volumes of the periodicals that we could find in special collections. And we found such wonderful things weird and wonderful things um, that I made a foolish comment about putting it on the web, not realizing at that moment what that meant. So that was the beginning of DVPP. It was a kind of a side project. I was lucky enough to work with a programmer, Martin Holmes, um, who's part of the Humanities Computing and Media Center at UVic, HCMC, who have been responsible for many wonderful projects such as Janelle Janstead's uh, Map of Early Modern London based at UVic, which is also wonderful. And then about five years ago, we got this shirt grant where we were able actually to push forward and finish this phase of DVPP. 
And it's only possible because we have a large collaborative team. It's such a lot of work. No one person could ever take this on, which in fact is characteristic, as you probably know, Carl, of periodicals themselves, yes. which were collaborative ventures, interdisciplinary ventures. Um, and so I'm, I'm really, really excited about this. But there's actually more to do. I mean, the DVPP at the moment is poetry centric, mm. which is we began by being interested in seeing whether we could track any changes over time through the century with periodical poetry. Um, but as we got more involved in this, we also became interested in all the pseudonymous and unsigned and anonymous poetry too, and tracking down through attribution research, such as publisher ledgers, um, who wrote this poetry. And so we're hoping to have a second phase of DVPP funding allowing, where we expand and complete the personography as well, and also add some more periodical poetry too. So yes, it's very fun and exciting and it's a very, very large project. Like yes. One of the questions I'm interested in is how to find things in it. With 15,500 yes. poems, like how do you do an assessment of Victorian periodical yeah. poetry with that kind of, of corpus? I think my well, my next question to you was was going to be about tracking sort of changes over time, and you and you touched on that in your explanation. Then, um, have you been able to, or has, has the the project grown so big that it's it's difficult to track? It's certainly difficult to track, um, but we also have wonderful search pages built mm. by the programmer uh, Martin Holmes, where you are able to find, if you want, patterns over time as you identify them. Um, so I've been able to do that based on my own interests. Um, and I must say with periodical poetry, the thing to remember is that not all the poets who publish in Victorian periodicals are actually Victorian. Uh, many Victorian periodicals publish older poetry, of course, also many poems um, by non-British poets, many, many translations as well. So you get a really diverse, heterogeneous collection of poets and poems. And also because of the culture of reprinting, if you're tracking change over time, you have to remember that not all those poems were written at that in that year, for example, to be published in that periodical. So I think the way to go about it for me is to think about a reader-centric approach to change over time. So what might Victorian readers have noticed in this sort of golden stream of periodicals in terms of changes and patterns? Um, and there's sort of two ways to do this, like one, two kind of simple ways to do this. One is to think about the index itself. So the index of the 15,500 poets and the associated poet, uh, poet poets and um, and illustrators and translators, and to think about patterns, for example, of authorship. So the mm. numbers of unsigned poems or pseudonymous poems by gender, uh, by nationality, even by periodical, you can track those kinds of things through the index. And then you could also, if you like, search for any patterns in poetics or in illustration patterns over time too. So every single illustrated or decorated poem has been encoded for multiple things such as placement of the illustration on the page, what the illustration contains, the kind of illustration like headpiece, tailpiece, illustrated initial, that kind of thing. So you can do lots of fun things with illustrations if you want. Um, and you could also track any poetics changes over time such as rhyme schemes or even rhyme words. We have a massive rhyme index of many thousands of rhymes as well. Um, but there the user has to be careful because we only encode about 10% of our corpus, just because nobody would fund us to fully encode 15,500 poems. So the encoded poetry is a sample. Okay. 
it's interesting you're talking about the illustrations and, and the notes because the project isn't just sort of scanned documents. You've actually got transcriptions of the poems and you've got actual substantial annotations and notes to go with them, which is, it, which will be useful for any scholar, but a really sort of clever way to track changes over time, actually, I think, uh, particularly in terms of the illustrations. I was just wondering, were there any changes over time that stood out to you? Hmm. So I'll give you one example. This is kind of a hard thing to, to, to answer, but I was interested in, recently I was interested in thinking about poetess poetry. Okay. Right? Thinking about, so this is, a, this is a good test case. So I was, I was thinking about identifying in our corpus what the poetess poetry might look like, in particular because so much of the poetry written by women didn't have their name on it, or it had a pseudonym or initials or was unsigned. And so I was really interested in thinking about expanding the number of women poets that we think of as poetesses. And, you know, we know that poets like Christina Rossetti, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, were resisting that you know, very sentimental, hyper-feminized tradition hmm. from the late Romantic, early Victorian era, right? But looking more and more at literary annuals, for example, like The Keepsake and The Forget-Me-Not, that are included in DVPP, it was clear to me that there's so much poetry that seems like the poetess style, right? So very echoic, quite conventional in its sort of prosody and its rhyme scheme, that I was wondering what would readers make of this? Like would readers think a poetess poem is a poetess poem because it's written by Felicia Hemans, for example, famous poetess, or Letitia Landon, or would they read uh, literary annuals and think, this might be a poetess poem because it looks like a poem by Hemans or Landon. So could I, in other words, scale up the poetess? Right, that was my like, test case. Yeah. And so, and so what I did with our corpus, so I looked at poems by Landon and Hemans in DVPP that were encoded for rhyme scheme, uh, what we call sonic devices such as anaphora, epistrophe refrain, that kind of thing, internal rhyme. And I looked to see whether we could create a set of things that we would understand as poetess poetry from, from the poems themselves, from the encoding. And then look to see through the century, is there more of this? And could we identify poems by men, poems by you know non-British writers, um, poems in translation and so on? Could we scale it up and find, you know, and, and find these poems at a larger scale in our in our corpus? And in fact, I have an essay coming out in Victorian Review on this any month now <laughs> with my findings. And in fact, I did find that, yes, through the century scaling up, the poetess tradition did continue. If you look for features of poetess poetry, um, this was patterned across the century. It didn't just go away, in other words, with a poet like Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who with the publication of Aurora Lee is seen to overturn the poetess tradition substantially so that a woman poet could write epic masculine, you know, poetry about politics, for example, and not about domestic affections only or hyper lyric. But at the same time, by scaling it up so much, so by finding these patterns, I had another question, which is that you know, what happens to the definition of the poetess when men were writing in this mode? right, or men with female pseudonyms, or women with initials, like, so what, through the century, how do readers identify this poetess poetry that kept on going, 
and kept morphing in different ways. And I haven't answered that question. So by, you know, by finding a pattern for me, it's just, and that's an example. So yes, there's lots more poetess poetry. We can dramatically expand our notion of who the poetess might be throughout the century. Then you have to think about the very definition of the term you're you know, looking, for, looking for trends with. So what does it mean to write in the poetess mode and to continue this you know, hyper-feminine, hyper-echoic mode throughout the century into, for example, late aestheticism. And I haven't answered that question yet, but it's a good yeah. example. So for me, finding a pattern is just the beginning of your research. It almost opens up more research questions to yes. pursue it, to really answer everything, right? It opens it up. Yes, as, as any good answer to a question should, it should just open more modes of inquiry. I thought it would be interesting to see if you could track the influence of pre-Raphaelitism and pre-Raphaelite poetics and how that might have changed in sort of periodical magazines of the time. I wonder if you could shed any light on that. I think you could do it. Um, okay. It would depend on whether you think there's enough encoded poetry in our encoded poetry corpus that you could identify as pre-Raphaelite. So I guess what you, what I would suggest is what you would do is um, identify the poets, first of all, that you definitely think are pre-Raphaelite, like what's your okay. test case? And then look to see if they're encoded. And then you can actually gather the statistics of poetics from the poem records of the poems you're interested in. And you can cut and paste them into an Excel spreadsheet. So things like number of masculine and feminine rhymes, dactylic rhymes, number of epistrophes, refrains, that kind of thing. And then you could look to see if you can find patterns in, you're kind of defamiliarizing the poetry to yourself in a way through stats. So you can look to see if you find, you know, what constitutes pre-Raphaelite poetry? Like, how would you define it? Absolutely. How would you yeah. do this? The poetics. And then look to see through our search page, do other poets write like this? Because you can also search in the, in, the, in the search page, you can search for poems with a certain number of feminine rhymes or epistrophes and that kind of thing. So you can do it. I suspect it would just lead to more questions, but also it will be easier in the next phase of our project where we will actually tag poets and poems that we believe definitively belong to the pre-Raphaelite school. Once we add those tags um, to our corpus, then it will be easier to find poems um, beyond the normal pre-Raphaelite you know, corpus, I would say. It's an interesting, sort of question in terms of pre-Raphaelite poetics and, and the theory side of it, that actually it's quite hard to pin down what constitutes a pre-Raphaelite poem. You know, there was that excellent book, the is it Heather Bozart Witcher and Defining Pre-Raphaelite Poetics, which has been sort of fantastic. It was a really useful book for me personally, but it'd be interesting to see if the ideas put forward in that book actually correlate statistically with your project and ju just to see if there was any any way of marrying the two approaches up. Yeah, you could certainly test all kinds of claims about poetry, including pre-Raphaelite poetry with our corpus. Mm. If you identify something you're interested in tracking and we have the markup to investigate it, or the metadata in the index to investigate it, you could certainly do that. And again, it, this will also be easier when we encode poems for genre. So we're, we're beginning to do that and it's very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, one example is if you think that pre-Raphaelite poetry might be defined in terms of its relationship between lyric and narrative. Mm. Like just, just to say hypothetically. Um, well, then once we've marked up 
poetry, thousands of poems for whether it's lyric or dramatic lyric, dramatic monologue or narrative, for example, or sonnet <laughs> and what kind of sonnet, then you can do more interesting tracking of change over time. So that's something that we're hoping to do quite soon is to add the genre tagging. And I think that will particularly help with the pre-Raphaelite poetics. Yeah, I think so. That's certainly something I'll look forward to exploring. I imagine that will throw up a world of new approaches to pre-Raphaelite poetics. Um, is there anything in there you're particularly proud of? Have you got any any sort of hidden treasures in there that really make you smile in the DVPP? Ooh. Well, I think for me, recently, it's been discovering who the poets are behind some of uh, the poems. Like, I think that's um, what I remember most of all. It's been my major job recently is to do a bit of that, poet attribution. So just recently... Um, for example, I was working in the Chambers Journal. This isn't a pre-Raphaelite example, I'm sorry, <laughs> but maybe there's a connection. <laughs> I was working in the Chambers Journal ledgers from the National Library of Scotland, which are very beautifully organised, really impressively organised. So for every issue that they have a ledger for, um, they give you the name of the poet and an address and the amount that was paid. And so you can track poems without a, you know, a name or the pseudonym, which I've been doing. A little bit of and I found recently that some really lovely poems on the night sky were written by Agnes Mary Clark who was an Irish writer known for writing on astronomy I mean she was a really serious astronomer she was a honorary member of the Royal Institution for example um, she published in periodicals major essays on astronomy and did her own research too and was uh, wrote volumes on the history of astronomy um, but before she did this so before she wrote these essays and books on astronomy, up to 10 years before, I think, she was writing poems in chambers on the night sky without a name. And they're just beautiful about the sky. When you look at them, you wonder, like, is this a scientist writing? Or is this a woman experimenting with a different genre than she might eventually have fallen into? So that's an example, which was just such a wonderful discovery to find oh, that she was writing these poems in chambers, which are very highly circulating weekly magazine. Yeah. Well, that's that's lovely. That's a really nice tale. I bet, uh, yeah, little nuggets like that. I bet, I bet that's really fulfilling when you find them. It is, and there are so many that we will never find. So many poets yes. and translators and illustrators that when you do find them, it is, um, it can be really wonderful. Um, and can much. I tell you another one with a bit of a pre-Raphaelite oh, connection? Yeah. So I've also been um, finding poems by an amazing poet called um, James Dawson Jr who was actually a rural class poet. Um, he worked on his father's farm in Ashton-under-Lyne. And we know that he knew Dickens and he wrote to Dickens. He sent a volume of his poems to Dickens, as I'm remembering. And he published with his name, he actually published um, in Macmillan's magazine, um, a poem in that magazine underneath a poem by Christina Rossetti. Oh, wow. And the Christina Rossetti poem is Consider. Okay. And James Dawson's poem, which is, which is placed directly underneath in the same page, is on Wordsworth and Hartley Coleridge and on their graves in uh, Westmoreland in the Grasmere churchyard. And this came out in January 1866. Now, it's not a surprise. I mean, he's, he's, he signs it with his name. Um, I found lots more poems by him in chambers in the ledgers without his name. So he was a very prolific poet as he was trying to be a journalist in Manchester and not doing so well and going back to the farm. He was sending poems, presumably partly for the money, to chambers. He published many, many of his poems without a name and some with. But in Macmillan's magazine, this is quite early in his career, in 1866, to think what he must have felt 
to have a poem published under Christina Rossetti, who was very well known by then in Macmillan's magazine. And what's really interesting is that Rossetti's poem Consider is actually about mortality and providence, right? It was you know, mm -hmm. obviously clearly a, a, a religious poem. Um, but Dorsa's poem is also about those issues too. And so somehow the editor, maybe the compositor decided they would go together really, really nicely. And they're in a really interesting dialogue on the page and the Victorian readers would have seen this and have put them into this relationship, although he's not a pre-Raphaelite poet or not yeah. what we would identify traditionally as one, of course. And it's that kind of discovery also that the sort of serendipity of how poems yeah. appear in periodicals um, that I also find incredibly fascinating. In fact, I think this is the first poem we have of his in our corpus, have of Dawson. So I find that's really lovely discovery too. I mean, just that you can find those poems that are in a relationship in our project because we tag them, poems that are published one after the other, um, that are in that kind of a relationship in a series that readers would have anticipated as in a relationship. You can find those on our site. So we're actually now encoding those. It reminds me of this idea of a sort of pre-Raphaelite circle, but quite how much that sort of bled out into more popular Victorian culture. And I imagine... Um, sort of journals and period, uh, periodicals were a major way in which pre-Raphaelite poetry was sort of disseminated. Um, do you think there's a difference between poetry that appears in periodicals and poetry that perhaps appears in more sort of a, tra a traditional book form? You've got to go out and buy a book as opposed to a magazine. Is there a noticeable difference between the two? I think there's a lot of difference, especially oh. in terms of how Victorian readers would have consumed or come across the poetry. But there's also, of course, many relationships between volumes of poetry by single authors or you know, edited collections or anthologies um, and periodical poetry. For example, a poet like Christina Rossetti published frequently with a journal like Macmillan's magazine in the 1860s in order to get presumably her name circulated. And for Alexander Macmillan, one of her major publishers of her volumes, of course, to test out to see whether her poetry was um, attractive to readers. So there's definitely a relationship between the two, but it's a very different experience. Um, I mean, one thing about periodical poetry is oftentimes, commonly, a poet loses agency over, that, over how their poem appears in a periodical, even if they sent it and it wasn't recycled or cut and paste. So again, a great example is Christina Rossetti because we know from her extensive correspondence with Dante Rossetti and with his correspondence as well with Alexander Macmillan and others, that Christina Rossetti was very engaged in how her first two volumes looked. Yeah. The design of the binding, um, the illustrations, uh, the colour of the binding, even everything. And also, of course, the revisions to her poetry that Dante Rossetti suggested or probably just did as well. Combination. So while uh, an author such as Christina Rossetti could have a lot of control um, over her volume through dialogue with editors and in this case, her brother, when you send a poem to a periodical, you don't always know and you think you commonly don't know how it might be illustrated or who it would be published along with, such as the poem Consider published just before Dawson's poem on Wordsworth and Hartley Coleridge. I think to follow that up, I, I was then thinking, what purpose do these periodicals serve? Are they specifically aimed at one audience in particular? Are they gendered? Are they class driven? Um, and... 
if so, does that that will affect the content of the poetry that goes into them, won't it? So you yeah. can just speak about that a little bit. Yeah, sure. So periodicals, especially literary periodicals that publish poetry of the kind that's in DPPP, generally had target audience in terms of socioeconomic class, gender, even geographical region. And of course, those wouldn't be the only readers reading the periodicals, which circulated promiscuously like within and beyond Britain, obviously, and were often read by, one copy was often read by many people, either within the family or without. Um, But certainly, yes, they did have a, what you might call a personality or a style or an ideology. And then the, the, the contents of the periodical would often be in dialogue with that not always neatly or comfortably, but there'd be a kind of an assumption that there'd be some sort of dialogue. And especially when the, the contributions didn't have a signature, there was a sense of trying to unify the periodical into a, uh, a style or an approach or an ideology or a socioeconomic uh, sort of class-based readership. So of course, Dickens Dickens's editorial personality where he says he's conducting his journals, such as All the Year Round, right, is a great uh, test case where a lot, most of the poetry in All the Year Round, Dickens's magazine, um, that they were unsigned. Um, with Christina Rossetti too, sometimes her periodicals ended up in places that might be, sometimes her poetry, sorry, ended up in periodicals that might be surprising. Although we know that she would have sent them there from the evidence of her correspondence, for example, once you send a poem, you often don't have any say over who might be illustrating it. But she was often very eager to send her poems off to periodicals that were illustrated, typically. Mm-hmm. And so I have a wonderful example for this. Yeah. Today on Christina Rossetti's birthday, in fact. Yes. Uh, we're recording this on the 5th of December. So happy birthday, Christina. 192 um, today. <laughs> yeah, so a great, wonderful age. Um, but an example that I have that's one of my favourite poems in our collection is her poem, A Christmas Carol. Of mm. course, she wrote quite a few Christmas carols, but this is the one that starts Low Newborn Jesus. And it was published in Atalanta in December 1887. So it's only the third monthly issue of that magazine, Atalanta. And yeah. so she clearly sent it off as soon as she realised that the magazine was up and running. Mm. Um and found some kind of affinity, I think, with its aesthetics, with its, with its very visual style and sensibility. And this is a really a, it's a beautiful poem, perfect for a Christmas issue, that they, they printed alongside the double spreader. On the right page, there is a Raphael, uh, a copy of Raphael's uh, Madonna and Child. And then her poem, A Christmas Carol, is published and a kind of decoration. It's really interesting um, in where, where the stanzas are separated out and alternating down the page and superimposed, if you like, on top of a, it looks like an evergreen twig, mm. which might be a kind of Christmas swag with yeah. stars decorated in the background and the first letter L for low as a very, very stylized initial letter. And it's so intriguing because it's as if the poem is itself part of the illustration. So the letterpress is incorporated into the visual look of the page. And it's really, I think, quite remarkable. It's as if the stanzas themselves are part of the decoration on the Christmas uh, evergreen. It's really, really gorgeous. But what makes this particularly interesting 
is that and to answer your question about um, you know, the relationship between poems and the kind of periodical they appeared in, Atalanta was a magazine for girls and adolescents, female adolescents. Okay. And it was what people call a new girl magazine. So it was aimed to entertain and instruct uh, girls before they married. And uh, it even had a, a reading union and a scholarship union where it encouraged girls to um, be scholars of literature in particular. It had essay competitions. It published in its Brown Owl editorial that came out every month, poems submitted by readers, Victorian girls. And it had many essays educating and instructing girls on employment opportunities and other things that they thought would be appropriate. So, I mean, it wasn't a feminist magazine as we would understand it, but you might want to call it proto-feminist, just like the new woman, right? So the new girl giving yeah. uh, adolescent uh, adolescent girls um, ideas and opportunities for what they might be able to do with themselves, but before marriage. And the early volumes in particular really pushed the, the ancient Greek legend of Atalanta, who, as you might remember as a Swinburnian, <laughs> like yourself, might remember is a, was a huntress yes. who ran very fast. And she didn't want to get married, but she agreed eventually that she would marry the man that would outrun her, thinking that that would never happen because she ran so quickly. And uh, Hippomenes tricked her by throwing a golden apple in her path as she was running away from him. And she stooped down to pick it up. And the frontispiece of the collated annual volume of Atalanta depicts Atalanta herself, the moment as she stoops down, but before she picks up the apple, and this is really uh, yeah. interesting because it's the the magazine is therefore identifying itself ideologically, if you like, with its readership as this is for you before you get married. It's not saying don't accept that traditional Victorian role for middle class and upper class girls. But before you bend down and pick up the apple or before you get your court into marriage, this is how you might develop yourself and even transform yourself. Um, and in fact, the very first poem published in Atalanta by Edwin Arnold was explicitly about that. It was an inaugural poem defining the magazine through poetry as offering girls this chance to transform themselves before marriage. Now, to think that Christina Rossetti published in the third monthly issue of Atalanta, that she publishes a, you know, at first glance, a fairly conventional, I say at first glance, fairly conventional um, religious lyric about newborn baby Jesus being held in uh, the Virgin Mary's arms and about the unifying power of divine love and about the power of meekness and maternity. Mm, yeah. That's such amazing visual treatment in Atalanta in the context of promoting girls, girl power, yes, yes. <laughs> right, and agency. So in that context, it becomes a different poem. When I was first reading through, I, I thought Atalanta might have been some quite patriarchal, magazine in terms of shaping women's views on religion and society this was my big assumption and then actually listening to you it, it's the opposite it's cleverly done though isn't it it's really yeah, cleverly it done it doesn't really defy cool. patriarchal convention so much as gently suggesting in this moment between i guess you know typical girls education maybe finishing at 15 or 16 yeah. and marriage um, suggesting this is a moment where many feminists write about this as an argument for getting girls into college and higher education. Mm -hmm. um, but it's saying that in this gap between, you know, home education or school or school education and marriage, you can be transformed 
and the magazine will do it, but it also is not provocative. Yes, I think it it, it does feed well into the the idea of the new woman, and, I, and I'm thinking about the date as well, sort of 1887. I'm, I'm wondering if there is almost that sort of early sort of Oscar Wilde sense of aestheticism about it. You know, you, you know the idea of it being, you know, like you say, quite a quite a liberating time for women. I, th- I think in many ways. It's interesting how the magazines actually also engage with this for women and what the, what role the poetry does in it too. Yeah. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned Oscar Wilde as well, Carl, because around this time, Oscar Wilde was also editing a magazine for women called okay. Woman's World, okay. which he had transformed from its predecessor kind of identity called Ladies' World. <laughs> and the first issue came out in 1887. So around the same time, of the same year, as Christina Rossetti's poem in Atalanta. And uh, it's a very different kind of magazine, but also promoting opportunities for women, employment opportunities and educational opportunities, but being proto-feminist, but not explicitly kind of anti-patriarchal as well. And um, something that Wilde does is he makes sure that the poetry in there is by the most up and coming, typically by the most up and coming female poets. There's some amazing poetry in Woman's World also typically illustrated. And well, the, the illustrations are, are, are incredible. I have to say for this one, I wonder if it was a deliberate choice to have a, a Raphael. Well, well, of course it was a deliberate choice, but I wonder if they've done it because of the pre-Raphaelite connection. I love that. I love that <laughs> comment on it. I do. Um, presumably the readers would have picked that up. It's, it's so hard because there's really no evidence no. about intention. It's so hard thinking about, you know, even with the Rossetti poem published on top of Dawson's poem, right? It's so hard to think, like, did they mean this? Like, what did, did yes. they mean this as a, <laughs> as a message? And so I prefer to think of it in a kind of reader-centric way. Like, what would the readers feel like holding a monthly issue for December 1887 of Atalanta or the collated annual volume published for the next year's Christmas market? And then the double spreader, they have a beautiful image of the Raphael on the right side. On the left side, they have this decorated poem by Rossetti, which is astonishingly unusual for the way it's treating the, po- the poetry, like pulling it apart, the stanzas and, yeah, and setting it out one after the other, alternating on, on top of the, the evergreen. And I think it would be a sort of, a, I guess, an immersive experience for the time they were looking at that poem, the double spreader. Yes. I, I mean, it's it's visually just so I mean the, the idea of holding that in your hand would 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 just be incredible a real aesthetic experience to have the image and the picture and, and the poem side by side that's that's a really special thing I think so and in fact I agree with you that it is an aesthetic experience but I'd like to also call it an aesthetic moment I know that sounds a little cheesy but uh, yeah. it's the work of a former <laughs> student of mine um, a former PhD student of mine, um, Kaylee Anus, has published a book on poetry in the literary periodical mm. in the Victorian era with Edinburgh University Press. And she hypothesized that poetry in periodicals often offered a meditative moment, a pause in amongst the heterogeneous, you know, generic profusion, um, often prose, of course, surrounding the poem. And so the poem was a moment of, you know, offering a moment of stillness that mm. held everything together. What's also interesting, if we call this an aesthetic moment for the readers opening up this double spreader, is that if you see this, um, Christina Rossetti has a facsimile of her signature underneath the title. Yes. And this is typical of Atalanta. They like to do that. And 
although they repeat this with every one of her poet poems, it gives a sort of signal of authenticity as well. Mm. If you do that, rather than have it typeset right, or have it, you know, have a letterpress uh, signature as part of the, you know, header of the poem or byline for the poem, having her handwritten signature as a facsimile suggests with all this artifice, it's all very sort of artificially laid out, isn't it? The um, the poems separated out on top of the, the Christmas evergreen to have her, her her signature on top of that suggests this is real and authentic. This is from yeah. the hand of Christina Rossetti, although multiple people have changed it and transformed it into this visual uh, pre-Raphaelite moment in a magazine. To, cha to change tack slightly, um, do you know if the poems ever been set to music? Because we're, on my first reading of it, I, I, I was singing it, it. If it hasn't, it needs to be. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that, okay. but I agree with you. If it hasn't, it needs to be. Maybe it's in Mary Arsenault's uh, digital yeah. project on music uh, from Christina, set to, Christina Rossetti's poem set to music. Maybe she would have that. I, I know a number of, well, obviously in the bleak midwinter has been, but I know quite a few Christina Rossetti poems have been set to music. So it wouldn't surprise me to find out that this one has. It's so lyrical. It is very, very melodic. Right. Yeah, lyrical, very, yeah, 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 yeah. Melodic, I agree. melodic's the word I'm going for, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I agree. In fact, I mean, just kind of going back to that notion of poetry and music, sometimes Atalanta did publish um, poetry with the musical accompaniment. Oh, um, did they? Yeah, in there. And the Victorian magazine did that as well. Victorian magazine was eventually incorporated into Atalanta. And they also did that. So it gives a sense that this um, they expected their readers to have multiple engagements with poems, so visual engagements and musical engagements as well. Wow, I, well, you've just sent me on a, another rabbit hole now in the DVPP. I'll be looking for musical scores. Yes, we have some, <laughs> we have some. Fantastic, that's amazing. Um, I think before we wrap it up, would you like to tell us about your anonymous Dante Rossetti poem? Oh, <laughs> I'm going to. Pull, I'm actually going to pull it up if I can okay. um, on the project, so I have it in front of me. This is something we were chatting about this before the podcast began. Mm. Um, so this is a bit of a conundrum that a few scholars have already looked at. So in once a week, January the fourteenth, eighteen sixty, there is a what looks like a pastiche of a border ballad called A Border Song. And it's also illustrated on the left-hand side um, in kind of quite fetching and dramatic fashion. And the poem is signed DGR. And scholars have looked at this and wondered, like, could it possibly be an example of Dante Rossetti publishing in Once a Week? Because of course, Once a Week began as an amazing multimedia experience. So uh, that's multimedia experience, that's a term that the fantastic scholar Linda K. Hughes uses about that magazine, where um, the illustrations to poems were absolutely wonderful and incredibly innovative. And so you could see why Dante Rossetti might want to publish in Once a Week, which had a pre-Raphaelite aesthetic to some degree, um, but there's actually no corroborating evidence at all that it's him. And so the Rossetti archive, for example, is very reluctant to ascribe the poem to him, although they do include it, as I remember. Um, in the account book of the periodical, there's no record of payment to Dante Gabriel Rossetti, although they have records of payment to other 
poet, so you might expect him to be there if they paid him. Um, and this poem isn't in any edition of Dante Rossetti that I've come across. So I guess you could say that scholars have a kind of squeamishness to ascribing yeah. this poem by DGR. It's not a very good one. <laughs> <laughs> it's the pastiche ascribing it to him. And so in our, uh, in our corpus, we say that it's by DGR, the pseudonym, but there's a note saying it might be by Dante Gabriel Rossetti, but we have no hard evidence. So I do recommend that you check it out. It is really <laughs> an interesting, you know, really interesting conundrum. And of course it's also illustrated by Fizz, Hablot Knight Brown, the famous illustrator. So they gave it some serious treatment in once yeah. a week. They put money into it. You know, there's a really, really fun illustration alongside it. But whether it's by Dante Rossetti, I wouldn't like to say. Did you have a date on that? The when it was published? Yes, I do have a date. So it's once a week, the 14th of January, 1860. 1860. Oh, okay. I was wondering if there was a Swinburne connection because the Swinburne's love of border ballads. I was just yes. wondering if there was if there was something there. It's probably about the time Possibly. the two met. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, perhaps it's a bit. It was a bit of a joke between them. I've often wondered that. Mm. I think somebody could look into this a bit more. Uh, well, that, that's exactly where I'm going in the next mm. five minutes. So, <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. Let I'm me know. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure for me too. And I hope you're successful in your next funding bid because I want to see where this goes. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you. If you would like more information about the Pre-Raphaelite Society, please consider subscribing to our journal. You can visit us online at www.preraphaelitesociety.org and you can find podcast information online. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Goodbye for now. Mm -hmm.